Amen. Amen. You guys can all be seated. Welcome. My name is Will, and I serve on the pastoral staff team here at Ebenezer as the youth pastor. And you might be wondering, why is this guy dressed up like a doofus right now? a fair question. And it is because it is Baptism Sunday, which is super exciting. And so we have two youth, McKenna and David, who are getting baptized today. So why don't we give them a round of applause? Yeah. Fire it up. Come on. And so I have the privilege of leading them in this, and it's just so exciting to watch you two be shaped and formed in the ways of Jesus. And so you can call me a proud youth pastor. I really can. So I'm going to just, with further ado, invite McKenna up to the front, and you're going to share your testimony. Hi. Um, As Will said, my name is McKenna, and I'll be sharing my testimony with you this morning. So I grew up in a Christian family, and I have been attending church since, like, forever. (laughs) And I remember the first time I ever accepted Jesus into my life was when I was eight, because at the time, that is what I thought was the right thing to do. And during this time in my life, I would go to church because my parents did, and I never understood the real meaning of having a relationship with God. And as I got older, I realized that I had no real connections with anyone at my church, and I felt like I didn't fit in or belong there. And later on, we started going to Ebenezer in 2018, which is when I was in grade 7. And at this age, I was dealing with the influence of friends from school. And the more time I spent with those people, the farther I distanced myself from God, And it wasn't until the beginning of grade nine when Joel Povey invited me to youth. And I wasn't really interested in going, but I did anyway. And the second I entered the room, I felt so welcome. And that was the first time I met people such as Jenna Giddings and McKenna Cooperis. And I felt an instant connection with them, which made me want to come back. I wasn't consistent, but I would still attend once in a while. And later in the year, Joel brought up Youthquake, an event the youth group planned to go to in February of 2019. I went without any expectations, and well, let's just say my views changed the second we entered the place. And the experience was probably the best experience of my life. Not only was it fun, but it was life-changing for me. And that weekend was the first time I ever felt a real connection with God. That was the weekend I truly accepted him into my life. Ever since then, I have become involved with the church by helping with the kids and being part of the youth group. And although I felt that connection with God, I still struggled or struggled with putting my trust in him. And when dealing with tough times, I found that something really difficult to do. But the more I stayed connected and committed, the closer I felt, which resulted in overcoming that obstacle. As I look back, God has done so much and continues to work in my life. He has offered me so many opportunities, such as becoming a life group leader for junior youth, helping in the Sunday services, and being a part of the leaders and training program. What I found helpful in this journey was having Jenna and McKenna as mentors. They have played a significant role in helping me grow my faith. And a Bible verse that stands out to me is Romans 8, verse 18, and it says this, 
Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. This verse stands out to me because even through the struggles I have dealt with, I know God has a plan for me, and he's been there through every step of the way. I made the decision to get baptized today because this has been something I've considered for a while, and I feel that God has put this on my heart. I am proud to be a part of this church, and I look forward to seeing how God continues to work in my life. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for coming. My name is David, I'm in grade 11 at Holy Cross High School, the best school. Some of you, <laughs> some of you may know Pastor Shaddy, who is my dad. I'm very excited to share my testimony and enter this new chapter in my faith. A testimony is your life story and your journey through your faith. My testimony is not some epic tale between light and dark. I never slipped out of faith and then found my way back and I never went through a bitter and angry phase. My faith has always remained stagnant. I was born into a Christian family. My grandparents on my mother's side were Catholic, while my grandparents on my father's side are Orthodox, with their heritage going all the way back to Bethlehem. But my parents are neither Catholic nor Orthodox. My dad would always teach me about Christianity and tell me about Jesus' great sacrifice. In fact, one of my earliest memories is me reciting Psalm 23 in both English and Arabic. When I was a small child in Qatar, my parents signed me up for Awana as a cubby. And then when we moved to Canada, I did all, Awana all the way until the sixth grade. I had never really seen a point in reciting verses or singing worship. I only went to Awana because I had to, and because there were games there. <laughs> when I was in grade three, I made the important decision to accept Christ into my heart simply for the reason of going to heaven. My dad, being a pastor, has always made me know a bit more about the Bible than the average person. He'd always stress how reading the Bible was important and that I needed to pray every day. He was a leader who showed people the way to Christ. I'd found it cool how he led people to Christ through Christ. Some people may think this would make me look up to him, but I just wanted to copy him. I began to read the Bible just so I could know some more trivia about it and not for spiritual gain. <clears throat> I wanted to lead others so they could look at me and say, this guy is better than me. I wasn't bitter, I was just arrogant. Because I went to a Catholic school, I would ace every single test and quiz that had any relation to the Bible. I tried to copy my dad, not Christ. I always thought, what would Chaddy do, not what would Jesus do? One day in grade seven, a friend told me about how arrogant I was being and I scoffed and laughed it off. Okay man, whatever, I don't care, is what I said, but it's not what I thought. When I went home, I thought about it a lot more. I needed to change something, I needed to change myself. Imitating others is okay, I realized. Even Paul encourages us to intimidate him or imitate him as he imitates Christ. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. So where did I go wrong? I didn't imitate my dad for the good of others or the faith, but for my own selfish gain. An epiphany isn't enough to change, however. So when my dad pushed me to, senior, to go to senior youth in grade 9, I begrudgingly accepted. I made new friends. I grew in faith the way we were meant to. Having role models and like-minded people around me helped me out a lot. I still go to youth because of this. All the way back at the beginning of June, Will asked me if I wanted to be an LIT, and of course I accepted. I needed to learn how to lead for the good of others. 
not for the power. I instead learned that leaders do not actually lead, they serve. I am learning to wash people's feet like Christ did. Hopefully in a figurative sense though. <laughs> I wanna be baptized to signify this change in growth. I am learning that in order to be a good leader, you must be a good servant, and how this all ties to Christ. I serve for others. I do not lead for me. I now walk in Christ's footsteps like he wants us to. Thank you. Two incredible testimonies for today, and it's just so amazing to see these two grow once again. So I'm going to recite a few lines for you, McKenna. And so, McKenna, do you declare Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. She says yes. <laughs> and McKenna, is this your personal decision today to get baptized? Yes, it is. And so in that case, by the power invested in me to you, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. outside and plus 20 here. <laughs> I love you, Canada. So. <laughs> so David, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who died for your sins? Yes, I do. And because he's your uh, Lord, do you want to obey him in getting baptized? Yes, I do. So by the authority given to us and from the head of the church, Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Awesome, thank you guys. That is, are we going through this? There we go. Had a little mic problem this morning in the first service. That was fantastic. Uh, what a way to just celebrate as God's people when we see stories of how God is working and transforming the lives of people. And uh, if you don't think our youth and our children are worthy investment, just take a look at those things again and uh, get yourself involved in that way. Before we get into our message today, today is the second Sunday in Advent, and last Sunday we lit the candle of hope, and this morning we will light the candle of peace. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. God sent his son that we might experience peace, and today we need God's peace to guard our hearts and our minds from being filled with anxiety. Today we remember that Jesus is our hope and our peace. The prophet Isaiah writes, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. May we experience peace this Christmas season. May we seek peace and pursue it. And may there be peace in our families, in our church, in our city, in our country, and around the world. This morning we ask the Lord to help us remember that you only are the giver of lasting peace and that you are with us. 
Well, good morning once again, and welcome to our Sunday morning service. Just 20 shopping days before Christmas, if you can believe it or not. Welcome to those who are here in the worship center and those who are joining us online, whether you're live streaming right now or whether you watch the video at some other time during the week. If you don't know me, my name is Cal. I have the privilege of serving on the staff team here, and it's my joy to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Now, as I mentioned, we are in the season of Advent, and I hope that instead of counting down the shopping days uh, that was said in jest earlier, just a moment ago, I hope instead of counting down the shopping days left until Christmas, you and those around you are eagerly anticipating the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Advent simply means waiting in anticipation of someone or something great. And about 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel, the people of God, waited with great anticipation for a coming Messiah. And today, we, the church, also wait for Jesus' second coming with great anticipation. But as Pastor West mentioned last week, it's not a passive, just let's get through the days kind of waiting. We are called to be active in our waiting. We are called to grow and mature in our faith and in, in our faith and engage the ways and mission of God as we wait. Even if most of the world has little or perhaps even no idea what it is or who it is that's being celebrated, we have an opportunity each and every year as the church to celebrate with purpose, to celebrate with intention, and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ into the lives of those who have yet to know him. But today is the second Sunday of Advent, and we've titled our Advent series, Behold Your King, as we look at the birth of Jesus through the lens of kingship, that Jesus came to earth as king. Pastor West got us started last week with a powerful message on Jesus, the longed-for king. And this morning, we continue with Jesus, the promised king. A father was going through his nighttime routine with his young daughter, and as every night goes, there was a bedtime story to be read. As they had been reading through a series of fairy tales, the dad opened the book to the, to the new story that they were going to read that night and began with the traditional once upon a time. The daughter stopped him and said, Dad, Dad, hold on a second. Do all fairy tales begin with once upon a time? The dad thought for a moment and says, well, well no, actually. Some fairy tale begins with, if elected, I promise. <laughs> now, what comes to your mind when you think of the word promise? I suppose that depends on what kind of promise you are giving to someone else or it's being given to you. For instance, a promise like I do brings joy and happiness and anticipation. A promise like, the message today will only be about 15 minutes, might bring skepticism and cynicism, or maybe even some callous laughter. Not much. Good. <laughs> Thank you for that. That wasn't a promise, by the way. That was an example. Uh, unfortunately, though, today, I'm not sure promises are held in very high regard. Uh, maybe it's because we just throw them out there somewhat a little bit flippantly or casually, Maybe we don't take serious when we say something that we're going to promise to do. It could be as simple as, I'll call you later. I made that promise to someone this week, I'll, I'll call you tonight. And then the busyness and routine and forgetfulness set in, and I didn't call them. Maybe it's we give them flippantly. Or maybe it's because when we receive them, we're never quite sure they're going to be fulfilled. 
But promises are meant to be more than just phrases or words we throw around, aren't they? I don't know who said it, but I found a quote that says, promise is a big word. It either makes something or it breaks everything. Now again, we're literally only days from Christmas. And for most of us and many of us, especially children, one of the great kind of so-called promises of Christmas is the anticipation of receiving those gifts that you've been wanting all year long, isn't it? Now, several years ago, Jimmy Kimmel, as a part of his late-night talk show, asked parents to videotape them and their children, as, uh, asked parents to, to um, promise their kids or give them a chance to open a Christmas gift early, but make it a gift that they knew the kids wouldn't want. Like, just give them a terrible gift, but see their reaction when they, when they with full of anticipation at, at being able to open a Christmas gift early, see what their reaction would have been. So take a look at the video screen. I've taken a couple of clips, a few clips from that, uh, from that episode. What'd you, what'd you get, Charlie? I don't like this. Oh. What is it? An old banana. An old banana? Isn't that exciting? No. What are you doing? <laughs> wow. A battery and an onion. What's wrong? I don't want an onion. Did you smell your onion? Here, smell it. Marissa, what do you tell me all the time about my cooking? I love it. You love my cooking, so I made you something. So you don't want that peanut butter and jelly sandwich? I'll eat it. I'll eat it. Here's your one present you get to open for Christmas. Merry Christmas. He got the 
with our classic, classic. Power of a promise, eh? And the disappointment when that promise doesn't come the way you think. You know, as we consider, and as I was preparing for this message, and, you know, there's lots of different approaches, and I really kind of had a hard time tying everything together, so we'll see how this goes. But my mind was drawn to this idea that, you know, typically when we look at Christmas, or not typically, when we look at Christmas, we look backward at what happened, and we see the context of what happened. We can see how the pieces fit together. But when I considered the, Jesus, the promised king, I felt it was important for us to try to back ourselves up and put ourselves into the mindset and the perspective of the Israelites on that first Christmas or that first season of Advent. And what were they seeing and what were they looking at when they considered Jesus the promised king? And I think it's very different from what we see and what we understand, but I think there's an application from there to, for us today. As Pastor West again shared with us last week, if you think about the history of the nation of Israel, the history of God's chosen people, it really is a history of exile and foreign rule. For most of their history, I think some statistics would say anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of their history, um, Israel was under the rule of somebody else. From the centuries of, slave, uh, of captivity as slaves in Egypt, and then, yes, they got, received the promised land for a few years, but then they were exiled into Babylon. And then they lived in, uh, uh, as um, they were ruled, they were returned to the promised land, excuse me, but then they were ruled by Persia, and then by Greece, and then the Romans. It was during the time of the Romans that Jesus entered into the picture. Then in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and sent the Jews scattered all around the world. And everywhere they went, the Jewish people were ostracized and persecuted. It was only in 1948 that the United Nations recognized the rebirth of the nation of Israel. But even, in, even today, Israel and Jews continue to be, uh, be under tremendous persecution and even hatred. Now, the book of Deuteronomy predicts this ahead. Deuteronomy says this, Then the Lord will scatter you, the Jewish people among the nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. And among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. A strange description of God's people, isn't it? They longed for someone to lead them out. Ever since they were created, they longed for someone to lead them out of these difficult and harsh circumstances. It's under these circumstances that the people of God longed for a king. But throughout Israel's tumultuous history, God has always given them promises of a Messiah and has always promised them deliverance. Even before the nation of Israel was created, God promised right after the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that one day he would set everything right. In Genesis chapter 3, God curses the snake, the, the, the snake that um, Satan took the form of a snake to appear to Adam and Eve. And he curses the snake saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your heel uh, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And this was a precursor to Jesus defeating the power of sin and defeating Satan himself. But throughout the whole entire Old Testament, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of promises that God gives to his people that one day he will send a king who will deliver them. 
Genesis 49 verse 10 says, the scepter, which is simply the sign of kingship, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the ruler's staff from between his feet until to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 to 13, we read, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and uh, sorry, your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build, his, uh, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 promises the people, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And perhaps two of the more commonly known promises for a king, a deliverer, a messiah, are found in the book of Isaiah. First from chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And then from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the people throughout their history longed for a king, longed for a deliverer, longed for a Messiah to free them, and God throughout Scripture, through his prophets and, and, and through his uh, spokespeople, promised them that one would come. God promised that one would come, and the people knew this. The promises were there. Now, you would have thought that perhaps these promises would have been enough. But the people waited, and nothing. The people waited some more, still nothing. And they waited again, and still there was nothing. And each time they were exiled, each time they were taken into captivity, each time they were ruled by a foreign nation, they, they, they were wondering, where is this king, this deliverer that God has promised? Who is this promised king? Why has he not shown himself yet? When will this king come and set us free? Is God even going to send us? Can we even rely on these promises? Where is what God has promised? And then to top it all off, so to speak, God, in the book of Malachi, after again delivering a message of promise through the prophet Malachi, stays silent. See, there's a period of time between the end of Malachi, which is the last word of God, the last promise of God to send this deliverer, there's a period of 400 years where God is silent, where there is no message from God, no prophets, no spokesperson on behalf of God, and the people are left wondering, where is this deliverer? The silence is so loud, it's deafening. You see, not only has God not yet fulfilled his promise to bring a king, now he's not saying anything at all. Four hundred years after Malachi, and then something, not much, but something. An angel brings a message to Zechariah, telling him that even though he is old and his wife is old, they're going to have a son, to name that son John. Because John is going to prepare the way for the promised Messiah, the promised king. Then the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And even though she was unmarried and still a virgin, tells her that she would become pregnant, that she would give birth to a son, a son to be named Jesus, and that Jesus 
would be their king. Then another angel brings a message to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and tells him not to fear about Mary's pregnancy. Don't, don't leave her. This is not anything on you. Because the child she was carried was from the Holy Spirit. And again, name that child Jesus because he'll save the people from their sins. Then after Jesus' birth, angels appeared to shepherds to declare this miraculous birth and the coming of this Messiah. And wise men from the east who recognized the prophecy, particularly of the star, began to make their journey and arrived in the, and, and, and saw with their own eyes this newborn king. The king, the Messiah, had finally arrived and God was silent no more. But again, one would have thought that with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promised king, the people would have rejoiced and celebrated. And some did. But most didn't. And as Jesus grew, and as he began his ministry, and he began to teach and perform miracles, talk about the coming kingdom, more and more people actually rejected him as the promised king. And in the ultimate display of rejection, the Jewish people of the day had Jesus killed through the Roman government. Only once did the masses at large acknowledge Jesus as king. That was on Palm Sunday, the week before the crucifixion, the week before Passover, when Jesus entered Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. But it was only one week later that they shouted to have Jesus crucified. It's actually interesting that the title of our series, Behold Your King, comes from this interaction between Pilate and the hateful masses when Jesus was on trial. In John 19, we read, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate had gone through the whole rigmarole of a trial. He tried to understand why the people wanted Jesus uh, to be crucified or at least punished. He was trying to figure out, and he found nothing wrong. I find no, no sin. He has not broken the law. There's nothing wrong. I'm tr and, and he tried to have him free, but it continues by saying, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Pilate, of course, was in charge of the area that, that Caesar ruled because the, the nation of Israel was at this time under Roman rule. So if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. It would be an act of treason, in effect, is what they were saying. Anyone who claims to be king, Jesus, opposes Caesar. Now, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was a day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. And this is what Pilate says to the people with Jesus standing beside him. He says, behold your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, the crowd shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate asked the question, shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, and the people responded, the, the, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. You see, when we talk about Jesus as our promised king, we look at it through our own eyes, looking back, and we can see how Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of God's promises. So we celebrate and we rejoice. But we need to realize that when Jesus was born, and as he lived his life, he was not the promised king the Jewish people expected, and he was not the king that the Jewish people wanted. He didn't do what they wanted him to do or what they thought he should do. He wasn't the charismatic leader, the military force 
that was going to free them from the oppression of the Romans. Remember the reaction of some of those kids in the video when they received a gift that they really didn't want? I wonder if that doesn't parallel with some of the reactions or the the reaction of the majority of the Jews of Jesus' day. You know, just like the Israelites, I think there are times in our lives where we don't seem to see the promises of God fulfilled. Where we feel that God is silent in our lives. Or when we feel that what God has brought forward is not what we want or what we expect. And I would imagine that there are some of you here this morning in the building or some of you who may be watching online and your experiences with God and with Jesus have have been more confusing and disappointing, even frustrating, than they have been fulfilling or renewing. Perhaps a medical issue, be it a physical or a mental health issue, and a cry for healing. Perhaps a relationship that's been broken and a need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Or maybe financial uncertainty and insecurity and you're looking for stability. And here's the hard part of it all, is that often we know the promises of God. We, we have feel-good messages on the promises of God, but unfortunately your experience hasn't, hasn't been that. You see, if we look at God's names as a simple way of understanding the character and nature of God and, and the promises of God, we know that God is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And yet we still have these unexplained physical ailments and mental health issues. We know that he is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace, and yet our relationships continue to be broken and dysfunctional. We know God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, and yet week after week and month after month, we seem to slide further back and sink deeper and deeper into this financial pit. And we know God promises peace, we bring our needs and a removal of anxiety when we bring our needs before him, but we don't experience that when we pray. And we don't see how in the world God is working out all things for the good of those who love him. The promises are there, but they're not living, they're not active, they're, they're not real in our lives, or they're not being fulfilled in the way we want or we expect. So in times when God seems far from us. What do we do? When the times when God doesn't seem to be fulfilling his promises, what do we do? In the times when God seems silent, what do we do? Times when God isn't doing what we want him to do, what do we do? I think if we reflect on Jesus as our promised king, we're reminded of three things. First, Jesus, the promised king, reminds us that we need to know God for who he is and not who we want him to be. We talked about this before and and many times over, but I I think it's so important to repeat, especially in the the culture and, and society that we live in today, is that we always want God to be what we want him to be and to do the things we want him to do, but we need to learn to see God for who he is. The promised king through Jesus reminds us of that. You see, the Israelites interpreted Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises, through their own lens of their own personal wants and expectations. And to him, he was found unsatisfactory, and therefore he was rejected. 
And our understanding of God should not and actually cannot be shaped through the lenses of our own experiences and feelings, through our own expectations and desires. Otherwise, we're just making God into our own little puppet. If you don't do this, then mm, I don't know. If you do do that, then okay, then, then that's, that's all good. And we, we can't do that. God is who he is. And during those times when God seems absent or when he's working in ways we neither understand or maybe we don't even agree with, we need to do a deep dive into the character and nature of God and then allow our understanding of who he is to shape our response to the situation that we find ourselves in. Pastor West mentioned last week the story of Job quote he gave was early in, in, in the situation with Job, and, and Job had a lot more growing to do as you read through the book, but he began with this, which is just an incredible statement. And Job, after learning he had lost all his oxen and donkeys and sheep and camels, and each time this happened, it was one servant who came to tell Job, but all the other servants had also been killed. So he lost most of his servants. And then finally, the, the, the news came that his sons and his daughters were in the house of the oldest, and, and that house had collapsed, and all of his sons and daughters were dead. And in a situation like that, when you're wondering, where is the promise of God? I follow you. You promised this, this, and this. And, and, and because Job knew God, he was able to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's only because Job knew God that he could say that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he and his companions found themselves under extreme persecution, lives in danger, constantly on the run, it was because he knew God that he was able to say, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Then what does he say? He says, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will do it again. He will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. See, Paul could only say that because he knew God and his circumstances were interpreted and understood and lived in the light of who God is and not the other way around. So our life's passion should simply be to know God. To know him. And I don't mean a knowledge of him by memorizing. I, I loved what um, David said about he just memorized a bunch of verses so he could appear smarter than all the other kids. Or because then at least that's what Shaddy, sorry, his dad Shaddy would have wanted. And then he made a turnaround to say, you know what? It's not just about memorizing the verses. It's not about sitting in a sermon. It's about knowing God. In an intimate relationship with him. And so our, our passion should simply be to know God. And Jesus said, this is, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Because Jesus, the promised king, reminds us that we need to know God. Second, Jesus, the promised king, reminds us that God has a greater plan. That God has a greater plan that goes beyond us and our circumstances and our situations. See, Israel longed for a king to save them. They longed for a king to save a people, the Israelites. 
But God provided them a king to save all people. The Israelites couldn't see or accept that. They couldn't understand that they were not the center of the universe. Not everything revolved around them. Not everything was about them. That God was at work doing things much greater than they could ever expect or even imagine. And so they rejected Jesus because they wanted Jesus to save them. Our North American culture, you know, feeds into this this value, or I won't call it a value, but this, this perspective, this attitude of individualism. And so we live our lives mostly for what we want and we desire, and I believe that this individualistic attitude creeps into our faith. Not even creeps, it maybe even dominates our faith, and it maybe even grounds our faith. Yes, salvation is a personal decision, and the choice to follow Jesus is something that you have to decide, but far too often we take that salvation and, and we put it in our back pocket and we continue our lives for ourselves and not for the greater persons of God. Uh, yeah, we attend a church service every now and again. We might even put a few dollars into the offering plate or maybe even a lot of dollars into the offering plate. We might, we might even serve here and there and, and we help out where we can. But, but if we truly examine our hearts, we see clearly that we are not fully committed to the plans and to the mission of God and align our lives to fit his purposes. We kind of mold God into our purposes when we have time, when it's convenient, when it doesn't stress our budget for the things we want to buy or the time that we want to spend on the things we want to do. You see, God's plan is redemption and reconciliation of all things, of all creation. And he invites us to put aside our plans, which are petty and unsatisfactory and unfulfilling anyway, Put aside those things and join him in his plan. And our life's passion then should simply be to follow Jesus in obedience, to make disciples of all nations, to make disciples of those that God has placed us in relationship with as we share and we live the fullness of the gospel in every area of life and help others to do the same. That Jesus, the promised king, reminds us of God's greater plan. It's not just about us. And third, Jesus, the promised king, reminds us that it is God's desire to work and to transform our lives into the likeness of, our, of his son and to transform us as a people that he can use uh, for the nations. See, the Israelites were the chosen people of God, and they knew it, but not in a good way. You see, they knew they were the chosen people of God, and they used that, that position to lord it over others, to look down upon others, to, to raise themselves up as better than the nations who are around them. They, they lost the sight of the fact that it was and it continues to be God's desire to transform a people so that they could represent him to the world. A people who live and act in the ways and the character of God and a people that will draw others to him. I think I've said it before, the quote that says, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And yet too often we come to services or we come to, to meetings with, what am I getting out of this? And yet our focus should be our other people seeing the love of Christ, the reality of Jesus in our midst. That transformation begins in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
And it is only through the work of Jesus, the promised king, that we can enter into a relationship with God. And his desire is that in that relationship, we grow in the character of his son, Jesus Christ. Again, maybe some of you are here this morning and you've never made a decision to make Jesus your king. Maybe if you're at home and you're watching and, you know, it's Christmas season, so you, you're tuning into a church service, and, but you've never actually made Jesus your Lord and your king. And I would invite you to do that because when you do, when we decide to follow Jesus, to put aside all those other things that, contract, that distract us, that turn us away from him, when we make Jesus our king, he can begin the process of transformation. And he can turn us into the likeness of Jesus. I believe it was Rick Warren who said, God is more interested in your character than your comfort. God is more interested in making your life holy than he is making your life happy. But what's the American dream slash Canadian dream? Comfort and happiness. And I think even in our faith, we strive for those things. And we don't realize that it's about character and holiness and not about comfort and happiness. Romans 8.29 from the message says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. Our life's passion should simply be to allow the Holy Spirit of God to transform us and to sanctify us into the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the promised king, reminds us of God's desire to transform us. The worship team can make their way back up, and I know they have to reset some of the things on the stage here, so we'll give them a few moments to do that. But this morning, we also have the privilege of joining together in the Lord's Supper. On your way in, you should have received the communion element. If you did not, uh, I believe we can probably get a few trays out, and if you want to pop up your hand, uh, or I uh, see uh, Brent is back there, yeah. So if you need a, a communion element, just indicate that, and someone will come down and pass the communion elements to you. And I think this morning it's entirely appropriate for us to gather around this table to celebrate and to commemorate the, the death and the resurrection, but then also to anticipate his return one day. Because Jesus is indeed the promised king, we celebrate and remember him as king. Jesus may not have been the king we wanted, but he was a king we needed. And it is only through him, through his death and resurrection, that we could be made right with God. The celebration of communion is a remembrance of his life and his sacrifice, an acknowledgement today of his work and an ongoing mission, and an anticipation of his inevitable return, where he returns and establishes his forever kingdom, and he rules as king. In these days, we have a choice to make him king of our lives. But as Philippians 2 tells us, there will be one day when Christ returns, and it says at that time, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you have that choice today, to make him the king of your life. So as we take communion this morning, let's do so, remembering him as not only our present king, but our future king when he returns. I'll ask you to stand so as we receive communion together this morning. And if you want to carefully peel off that top kind of clear cellophane piece to reveal the, the, the bread or the wafer, 
Scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, so he's in the upper room with his disciples enjoying Passover, getting ready for what he knew was coming, the crucifixion. It says when, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. If you want to peel the next layer, which is kind of more the foil one. After supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. So whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's receive the cup together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, our promised king. And Father, in times where we don't see you at work, where you seem silent, where you're doing things we don't understand and don't expect and maybe don't even want, I pray that our hearts would be drawn back to who you are, your greater plan, and your desire to work in, transformation, in a transformative process in our lives. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes all of this possible. And as we have celebrated his death and his resurrection, we eagerly anticipate his return when he will establish himself as the king. Father, we long for that day. May we be faithful to you until then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to stand to receive the benediction. John writes in the book of Revelation, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for those who are online. Don't forget to register for our celebration service. Uh, and of course, there are the giving and generosity opportunities that we have. So take opportunity with those. We look forward to seeing you throughout the week uh, in other contexts and certainly next week as we gather together uh, for our service again. Have a wonderful week.